The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Good evening, Tom. How are you? Good, Father. Thanks Good. for being here tonight. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Yep. Father, I'd like to begin the program with a question concerning the differences between the Protestant and the Catholic Bibles. We received an email from one of our faithful viewers a while back who says he stumbled across this uh, attempt to explain the Apocrypha. Um, it appears to be a Protestant website. And what they say here is that there was significant debate in the early Christian church with a majority of the early church fathers rejecting the idea that the Apocrypha belonged in the Bible. However, under tremendous pressure from Rome, Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, included the Apocrypha, despite his insistence that the Apocrypha did not belong in the Bible. Uh, he says the Latin Vulgate became the dominant and officially sanctioned Catholic Bible and remained that way for around 1,200 years. Thus, the Apocrypha became a part of the Catholic Bible. Uh, it was not officially made a part of the Catholic Bible, though, until the Council of Trent in response to the Protestant Reformation. The early Protestant reformers, in agreement with Judaism, determined, determined that the Apocrypha did not belong in the Bible and therefore removed the Apocrypha from Protestant Bibles. Father, how would you, uh, how would you rate that, that explanation of the history of the Apocrypha? Well, the word balderdash comes to mind. Uh, this is what you would get from a Protestant website, of course. You know, just make up whatever. You know. I mean, sentence by sentence, right? Uh, it just it doesn't it doesn't correspond to reality. I'm sorry. For those who don't know what the apocrypha is, it comes down to this. Okay, uh, Martin Luther actually um, decided that there are certain books of the Bible that don't belong there. Okay, now, you have to remember that Martin Luther was one of those who okay, had the principle of Scripture alone, right? And so Luther and his fellow so-called reformers, um, they're Protestants because they were protesting, because their entire religion is built upon a protest against Catholicism. Remember that, okay? That's the foundation of their religion, okay? <clears throat> um, as a protest against Catholicism, that's all it is, okay? And, um, of course, they had to find a problem. They found a problem with uh, Scripture, okay? Martin Luther, who, uh, you know, among his principles listed sola scriptura, scripture alone, uh, then decides that there are books in the Bible that he doesn't like. <clears throat> he doesn't want these books in the Bible. And so he actually rips them out. And says, this doesn't belong here, this doesn't belong here. So much for his respect for sacred scripture, right? That he's now going to decide what books belong in the Bible and what books don't. After 1,500 years of Christianity, right? Um, where the world had gotten on just fine without a Martin Luther to tell them um, that this book or that book did not really belong in the Bible after, you know, all that time. So the man had no regard for sacred scripture whatsoever. I mean, uh, he did not rip out of the Bible the, the epistle of St. James, and yet he condemned it as an epistle of straw because it taught that we are, that faith without works is dead. Well, he wanted to teach that faith alone saves, you see. So 
it's not really a matter of, of Martin Luther having reverence for sacred scripture and basing his religious principles on sacred scripture. It is Martin Luther actually editing sacred scripture and deciding what in it uh, sort of meets his requirements, right? According to his faith or what he's willing to, um, what he's willing to believe. Okay, so anyway, so he's, he's torn out uh, more than a dozen books in the Bible and says, Book of Esther, Book of Judith, and other books too. He tore out and said, These do not belong. Now this, this Protestant site here is trying to justify this uh, act of uh, blasphemy, this sacrilege, this, this, um, this violence done to sacred scripture and divine revelation by saying that, well, you know, these books really were not recognized as being revealed and part of the sacred scripture. <clears throat> and so um, the, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church pressured St. Jerome into including them in the Bible. You, you know, one, if one goes back and does a little bit of, uh, of reading outside of this particular website or some, outside of some Protestant venue, you would find that that is absolutely not not the case at all. That uh, the Catholic Church did not pressure Saint Jerome into including any books whatsoever. Saint Jerome, in fact, was following the Church because uh, the Church had actually had to make the decision of what books belonged in the Bible and which books did not. The Catholic Church had to make that decision. The authority of the Church had to speak on this matter. You see, actually, what they're doing here is they're begging a question which is the undoing of Protestantism, okay? And the undoing of Protestantism is that the, the Bible does not stand alone. It can't possibly stand alone. The principle of sola scriptura is absolute nonsense, scripture alone. You have to have some authority which can tell you which books belong in the Bible and which books don't. The Protestants don't have that. Were they going to listen to the Jews uh, in their Masoretic text? Is, is that where they're going to get their authority to determine which books belong in the Bible? Even the New Testament books belong in the Bible and which books don't? Um, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm not. Because what they're talking about is absolute nonsense. The fact is that at the Second Council of Constantinople, I believe it was, 380. I believe it was, the church actually pronounced on which books were divinely revealed and which books were not. Why did the church have to pronounce on this? Well, precisely because there had to be some authority. And uh, that authority had to come from God. And the only authority to make that decision that came from God is the authority of the church. The church has the authority of the apostles, and the apostles received that authority from our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, you had a situation in the early church where, when Christ died on the cross, he actually um, had, did not say from the cross, all right, I taught you for three years, now you go try to find out what I really meant. Our Lord actually rose from the dead, he'd given authority to the apostles, he commanded them to go into the world and preach the gospel, uh, he said to them, he who hears you, hears me. The church is based on that authority which Christ gave to his apostles. That's why the church is apostolic. That's one of the four marks of the Catholic Church. That is not true of any of these Protestant uh, religions that are nothing but a protest against the Catholic Church. 
So, uh, Tom, in the early days of the church, there were Gnostics who were writing false gospels. They wanted to uh, uh, pervert the gospel of Christ uh, and to refashion it in a Gnostic sense to basically co-op the church for the decree, the uh, teachings of Gnosticism. Uh, I won't get into the explanation of Gnosticism here, just to say that they were worse than heretics, okay? Uh, and uh, they, they even pushed the idea of two gods, one good, one evil. And our knowledge that saves us, Gnosticism comes from Gnosis in Greek, which means knowledge. That knowledge is that we are God, and that's what Christ came to teach us. Essentially, that's the kernel of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics wanted to um, <clears throat> edit the Gospels that existed, the real Gospels, or write their own Gospels and intrude them into sacred scripture. Again, there needed to be authority from God to decide which was correct and which was not, which was truly divine revelation and where you had an imposter. Okay? And the church, the Catholic Church, was the one that had to make that decision well over a thousand years before Martin Luther ever, ever saw the light of day. Um, the church was here to decide that and to make it clear. And one of the criteria that the church used besides, I mean, the enlightenment from God and the authority that, that God gave her and the guarantee that God gave the church, but the church also used the power of reason <clears throat> also um, to, to say, well, look, <clears throat> in the Gospels of St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, and St. John, the Gospels that had been received from the very beginning uh, in the church, uh, we have these books of the of the Old Testament quoted and quoted by our Lord. So when our Lord himself cites a work from the Old Testament, <clears throat> that is, in the eyes of the church, <clears throat> proof positive that this is uh, this is part of God's revelation. That Christ is citing that work from the Old Testament because it is part of Revelation. <clears throat> and among those things that have been rejected are books that are, that are actually uh, not only uh, quoted by our Lord in sacred scripture, but also by other spiritual writers like in the epistles of St. Paul and so on, and by the early fathers of the church as divinely revealed. Um, this was happening before the first word of any gospel was written, that the, the apostles were preaching these things as Christ had commanded them. Christ didn't tell the apostles, uh, I'm ascending into heaven, you go and write down everything I said. Okay? And copy it and send copies of it all over the world. Our Lord said, go and preach the gospel to all the nations. Okay? And the gospel was being preached long, long before it was being written down. Um, the gospels were written down, and, uh, but they were the result of the preaching. It was the preaching of the apostles that was actually being recorded. Um, St. Justin Martyr even refers to them as the memoirs of the apostles, okay? So the idea of Scripture somehow standing alone and, and, and having sort of descended down to us on high in the form of a book, I mean, they might as well just throw their lot in with Joseph Smith and call themselves Mormons if that's the way they got their Bible. <clears throat> um, because, the, you know, their, their Bible is no more legitimate than the Book of Mormon, for that matter, or the Koran, uh, if that's the way they see it. And it didn't happen that way. <clears throat> the, uh, the fact is that the church had to 
guard those sacred scriptures against the attacks and the falsifications of the Gnostics from the very beginning. The church had to guard them and protect them against those who would twist the words like the Arian heretics, who would try to twist the words of the Gospels against the divinity of our Lord. The church had to divide, uh, protect the words of sacred scripture from being misinterpreted by the Macedonians, who were trying to deny the, the uh, divinity of the Holy Ghost. The church had to copy uh, through the, the so-called Dark Ages the sacred scriptures laboriously, letter by letter, page by page, so that any Protestant would even have an existing copy of the Bible. It was the Catholic Church in her monasteries who copied these sacred scriptures. And so, they, so they had no clue where the where the scriptures scriptures came from, and how they came down to fall into their hands. Um, you know, if you, I'll tell you what. Why don't we do this, okay, quickly, okay? Could you go through that line by line, okay? Because I'm trying to remember point by point what he said here, mm-hmm. because virtually there's an error in virtually everything he said. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can just uh, kind of. <laughs> I didn't shoot even, this down like a shooting gallery. I didn't even read all the uh, all the explanation file. But just to go back through some of it. Uh, By the way, I realize it's not the writer who's saying right. this. I realize that this is what he's reading on the yep. website about yep. the apocrypha. He says there was significant debate in the early Christian church, with a majority of the early church fathers rejecting the idea that the apocrypha belonged in the Bible. And this is not true. <clears throat> what's freely asserted can be freely denied. This is what's freely asserted in this Protestant. Uh, Website, it's absolutely not true. Okay. However, under tremendous pressure from Rome... Oh, by the way, when I say it's not true, there was debate. But when he says the majority of who? The fathers? Uh, the majority of early church fathers. Rejecting... Rejected the idea that the Apocrypha belonged in the Bible. Well, he's talking about the Apocrypha. We're talking about a collection of different books. Mm-hmm. He is. Uh, his definition of the Apocrypha here is they are the books of Tobit, Judith, uh, both books of Maccabees, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, and Baruch. For him to say that the majority of the church fathers rejected those books is, is absolutely patently false. Okay. Uh, okay. Under tremendous pressure from Rome, Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, included the Apocrypha despite his insistence that the Apocrypha did not belong in the Bible. See, Jerome did not insist that at all. I'd like to see what, what source he gives or tries to give for that statement, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, he accepted what the church decided belonged in the Bible because he recognized the Catholic Church had the authority from Christ through the apostles mm-hmm. and the, the, the duty to make that decision for the sake of the Catholic, the Christians of the world. Mm-hmm. Someone had to make that decision. And Christ gave us that authority in the church. The, Again, he's gratuitously, gratuitously asserting this falsely. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, one, if he offered any proof of that or uh, attempted proof, it would be very helpful because we could go and prove it false, that, sure. that his proofs to support his statements are absolutely not true. He also says the Latin Vulgate became the dominant and officially sanctioned Catholic Bible and remained that way for around 1,200 years. All right, think about that. For 1,200 years, this was the Bible. This is before there were no Protestants of any kind. This is before there was any King James version of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the only Bible there really was, wasn't there? So is he saying that all those 1,200 years, Christians had a false Bible? He says the Apocrypha was not formally or officially made a part of the Catholic Bible until the Council of Trent in response to the Protestant okay. Reformation. But he, was, he just said that for 1,200 years, this was the official form of the Bible, yep. right? Yep. And this is what everyone used, right? 
Mm-hmm. So he's contradicting himself. But finally, That's the Council of Trent, they made it official after 1,200 years? Yep. No, I'm sorry. Look, anyone with an ounce of reason can see that this man is, this, this website is contradicting itself. Yep. It's, it's, it's so unfortunate. I, I mean, you can tell I'm, I'm not happy about this. <laughs> Because um, it, it, there, there are many people who would read that, and they would not know how to deal with it mm-hmm. in their minds, and mm-hmm. their faith would be shaken by it, mm-hmm. when it is nothing but um, just complete balderdash. Sure. What's next there? There were other things he said in there, and then the website that are... The early Protestant, Oof. the early Protestant reformers, in agreement with Judaism, determined that the apocrypha did not belong in the Bible, and therefore removed the apocrypha from Protestant Bibles. Okay, it doesn't say how they they determined this, right? Nope. They just decided it. They agreed after one thousand five hundred years. Okay, yep. so they let Judaism decide what books of the Bible didn't belong there, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, I would like to, I would like to ask them a few questions. They, they would have to know that. Well, that the, probably that's perfect because the name of the website is gotquestions.org. Oh, so. gotquestions. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like you've got some questions. Okay. Well, now that I know, maybe maybe I'll uh, just have to uh, pop a few questions <laughs> and uh, suggest they might ponder this. Uh, how do they explain? Well, I, I mean, how would they explain Martin Luther's reverence for sacred scripture when he denounces the Epistle of Saint James as the Epistle of Straw because it doesn't agree with his principle, mm-hmm. scripture alone, or faith alone saves. Mm-hmm. Where is the reverence for scripture there? And might not that not also explain why these Protestant divines in, in 1500 years after the church was founded and 1200 years after all of the, the Bibles, you know, contained these books were in error and they knew better. Mm-hmm. Where does that show any reverence for the word of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it doesn't. And when you see how Protestants abuse the Bible, twisting it this way and that, you know, you see that they have no reverence for the Word of God. Sure. Catholic Church has martyrs who died for the integrity of sacred scripture. And uh, they have martyrs who died to, to basically adulterate it. Mm-hmm. Sad to say. And uh, Father, not, not to get too deep into this, because I b- believe you've actually made a video in the past concerning this idea of, yeah. um, of Scripture alone, and so we, we can link to that. But I just real quick, I, I, I was uh, just recently actually having an interesting discussion with a friend where we were talking about the, uh, the translations of the Bible that we read and how those are not actually technically the divinely inspired Word of God. They're, they're translations mm-hmm. of that. And as a, uh, a professional interpreter myself, I can vouch for uh, just how in- incredibly difficult it is to translate from one language to another, how, uh, especially with, with English, it's so tough to match mm-hmm. things up and, and achieve language equivalency. It's, it's an extremely, extremely tough task to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that being true, there has to be some some authority to say, yes, this is this is an appropriate translation. Mm-hmm. This uh, coincides with the original intent of the original actual mm-hmm. divinely inspired word of God. If you don't have that authority, you could have, like I believe Martin Luther said, you could have as many creeds as you have heads. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see with Protestants. And that I think that, that shows right there that there has mm-hmm. reasonably, any reasonable, logical person has to, to say there has to be some kind of authority to say, yes, this is, a, this is an accurate or as accurate as possible translation of, mm-hmm. the, of sacred scripture. There are so many different versions of Protestant Bible, Protestant-produced Bibles out there. Mm-hmm. It's got to occur to Protestants. 
how can there be so many uh, versions of this? How, how, how can there be so many interpretations, mm-hmm. uh, so many different uh, expressions used yeah. for the same, uh, for the same Bible verse, and and with with nuances, different meanings? It yeah. must occur to them. Who can tell me what what this actually means when I don't have any original text, and if I did, I couldn't read it anyway. And Father, how, how dangerous is that idea? Because actually, just just uh, two days ago, I was reading Matt Walsh's book, that the the, um, the blogger, the conservative mm-hmm. blogger. He he wrote a book uh, last year or something, I believe. And I was just reading this book, and he, he quotes a lot of scripture in there. And one of his quotes, uh, he said, God said, I am who I am. Mm-hmm. So he adds one word, I am mm-hmm. who I am. I am. And that totally changes the meaning of that. What God actually said was, I am who am, implying I am eternal being. I exist by my very nature. Mm-hmm. But to say, I am who I am, that's totally meaningless. Well, like, again, any, any that is interpreted by some as meaning God telling Moses, look, don't ask my name. I am who I am. Just, you know, you go do what I tell you. But that, that, that's, that, it, it utterly and completely changes yeah, the significance. That, that statement, I am who I am, anyone could say that. All that is, mm. is is affirming reality. Anyone walking down the street could say that I am who I am. It's mm. totally meaningless. But right. if you admit that one word and give the actual translation, I am who I am, how incredibly deep is that? Mm. You, wow, here, here we have God who exists. I am the one who is. Yeah, I exist by my very nature. And so that's just, you know, one tiny I, mm. one letter. Mm. Add one letter and it totally totally changes the meaning, totally throws it off. <clears throat> and I think that that right there is just pretty positive. Well, even, even our Lord on the cross, you're right, you're right, Tom. You're so right. I mean, we had some Protestants living across the street from us in Florida, and one day the young lad came across and, is, and said, my dad says that you Catholics have uh, are, are messed up the Bible. He said, he said when, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, amen, amen, I say to you, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. As though to say, Amen, Amen, I say to you, comma, this day thou shalt be with you in paradise. But the comma should be, after I say to you, or after this day. Meaning, Amen, Amen, I say to you, this day, comma, thou shalt be with me in paradise. I mean, even the moving of the comma changes changes something, right? Mm-hmm. So, who is to determine what the scripture really means? Martin Luther is to determine it for himself. But then, when the Baptists decided not to follow Martin Luther's interpretation, he told the princes, well, go kill them. <laughs> the peasants were, right? Because they didn't follow his interpretation. But this is, this is what happens. That is why God gave the apostles the authority and said to them, he who hears you, hears me. And why the apostles um, that actually ordained and, uh, and gave those powers that Christ had given them, investing those powers in the church. Uh, precisely to authoritatively and reliably make those decisions. Protestants have none of that, and they will have none of it. Why? Because they want to basically uh, make it up for themselves. They, each one wants to interpret for himself what Christianity really is mm-hmm. to him. Um, as you said, Martin Luther said, as many creeds as there are heads. Um, why Why did they keep retranslating the scriptures <laughs> so they didn't get it right the, the first time? Uh, well, evidently, right? They blame the church. They say the church got it wrong. And ever since then, they've been translating and retranslating and retranslating it as though they keep trying to get it right according to what this translator thinks it should mean. And uh, they're making a travesty and a mockery of Christianity by this. Mm-hmm. This false principle. You're right, Tom. We did a video on that uh, scripture alone. 
I'd recommend that especially Protestants go and watch that video. Sure. Oh, that'd be good for Catholics too, because they have to have some answers for people who are mistaken. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry for getting, I have so many people come to me with these, these absurd yeah. stories uh, from Protestant websites um, that not only are, are, are patently false with a little <laughs> bit of research, you can, you can prove that, but they are, they're internally contradictory too. And when you, you know, actually sit down and explain, now look at what they're saying here. Do you see that? Do you see how this contradicts what they've said before? People can see it, but at first it shakes them. It shakes them up. And uh, this, is the, this is what concerns me. This is why I react the way I do. I, uh, I, just, I just find it reprehensible that they, well, the whole idea of Protestantism, I find reprehensible anyway, so... Well, Father, speaking of Protestantism and making a mockery of the Catholic faith, let's talk about Francis. Uh, the, this, the, title oh, is, the title of this email, so tired of the Francis follies. True is that. Uh, this, we received this email while you were away in Rome, Father, and the viewer says, I know that Father Jenkins is away, but I'm hoping when he returns that he will give us a good dose of his usual words of wisdom in response to the farce that Francis is making out of the Catholic faith. First, no hell. Now this awful encyclical in which he belittles contemplative prayer and the rosary, and today he is telling us to resist the devil. How can anyone take anything coming out of his mouth seriously? And what a joke he is making of the Catholic faith. With each day that passes, all those prophecies which have warned that the great apostasy will begin at the top seem to be more and more authentic and coming to pass in our own lifetime. I know we need to just keep, keep the faith and trust the Lord and Our Lady, but could we also have some words of wisdom from Father Jenkins correcting Francis's latest errors? Well, that's a tall order because there are so many of them. I mean, he produces errors faster than, you know, um, than we can uh, write about them, but, you know, I, you know this, this author says what he or she says uh, with great conviction, obviously sees through the errors and I really don't know that it's necessary to respond to the errors that this mm -hmm. writer mentions because the writer sees clearly yeah. that these are errors, right? And uh, I'm sure the writer himself or herself could point out the, the falsehoods <laughs> here. And, you know, you, you, there was a, a mantra that was repeated, um, actually, I guess, uh, uh, did it come from the Star Wars, uh, Star Wars movies, the, the Force Be With You? Was that it? Right. And of course, uh, who who is the director? Who is the uh, director of the Star Wars? Uh, uh, Lucas, uh, George Lucas. George Lucas. He's he's very much into Buddhism, isn't he? Not sure. Like Zen Buddhism. Not sure. I understood that that <clears throat> many of the names that he chose for characters, and the, the whole motif was based upon this kind of Buddhist idea. And Francis has gone one better. Now it's the farce be with you, according to our writer. The farce be with you. And so Francis is continually, you know, raising out of the muck of the swamp, you know, these, these uh, defunct uh, starships or whatever. Uh, by the power of his mind, he's raising things, these things out of the muck. And uh, giving us the mantra, the farce be with you. Um, I mean, I, I, I do agree with what this writer says. Uh, if we were to... <clears throat> itemize the errors that Francis made. Maybe we should make that part of the show and just get it over with. 
and just say, okay, we're going to devote five to 10, 15 minutes of every show to just dealing with the, the, the errors of the moment that Francis has articulated I think we probably since our last it. show. I think we could probably <laughs> do that. It would be quite a catalog. Um, generally, I mean, if, if Francis says something that I think is misleading to people, or which I believe that our own traditional Catholic people uh, need to hear, hear about for the sake of talking to their friends and relatives you know, who are going to bring this up, mm-hmm. then I, I would go into some depth with some of the things that Francis says. But um, uh, many other things that Francis comes up with, though, I don't know that they really need an awful lot of com- commentary. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, um, but because this writer was thoughtful enough to, to send that in, uh, maybe we just actually want to make that a standard part of the show and just uh, just go through that. I mean, I'm Francis sure that Follies. the Francis <laughs> the Francis farcical follies, um, and I, I'd be I'd be willing to do that if we need to. We can do that. While I was in Rome, I, I must admit, though, I was somewhat. Uh, somewhat insulated from Francis Follies. Um, <clears throat> I didn't hear a great deal of his uh, comings and goings and doings. Um, I'll be, oddly enough, being in Rome, I was too occupied. Um, and probably uh, things with things that he would not have liked. You know, Tom, we, we went into St. Mary Major Basilica there. That was the first of the major basilicas we visited, in fact. And we went into St. Mary Major, and we, uh, we, we knelt down at the altar where the manger is, that, you know, the relics of the manger that St. Jerome brought back from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem. And we prayed a decade of the rosary. And uh, I, I was going to mention to the children, the children, I mean, these young adults we, we had there, juniors and seniors, and their chaperones, that when Francis returned from one of his uh, junkets, he brought back and put a beach ball on the altar at St. Mary Major. Now, this is a very deep, deep, deep stuff now, okay? It, it was significant of something. It, it was, I think it represented something from Rio or wherever he'd been visiting, something by the, by the seashore. And so he put a beach ball on the altar and I, I thought, no, you know, I don't want to destroy this moment by having the, the, the students here in the, in the midst of this splendor, uh, focusing their, their imaginations on a beach ball sitting on the, the high altar at, uh, at St. Mary Major and kind of destroying the whole, the whole you know, experience for them of the majesty and the, the, the splendor and the glory of this, of this great basilica. And all of the beautiful things, the holy masses that had been offered there by popes, you know, holy, saintly popes throughout the ages. So I really did not go into that, any of that, wherever we went with them, because I didn't want to uh, just um, bring the the smoke of Satan into the sanctuary of God, as, as Paul VI said, by by talking about these these almost cartoonish antics of the Novus Ordo and its modernism. Um, the point being, while I was in Rome, I actually kind of put all that aside or tried to for the sake of the students. 
Um, so I, I'm really, I'm really not up to um, commenting all these things that Francis has been doing lately, or certainly while I was in Rome. But I'll leave that up to you to determine if you want to devote, you know, a certain amount of the program to just mm -hmm. giving like the Francis corner. And, uh, you know, rapid fire, well, what, what should we think about this or what would you have to say about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think we do, we do spend a lot of time uh, talking, talking about Francis. I remember that on a, uh, in a sermon some time ago, you mentioned how you received so many requests to talk about all of the current happenings in mm -hmm. Rome and the, the modernist church and all of this. And while some of these things are important, some of them do need addressed and, and rebutted and all of that, uh, you pointed out that all of these things, none of them help us advance in our Catholic faith at all by, by constantly being so caught up in this, everything that Francis says, explaining why it's wrong and all of that. None of that necessarily helps us advance in our Catholic faith. And sometimes it's, it's important to just block all that out and just focus on, you know, if it's a Sunday sermon, focus on, on the epistle and the gospel and the message therein and, and use that as an impetus to uh, kind of advance in our Catholic faith. And and um, I think that's something important to keep in mind sometimes. While sometimes it is important to address these things, mm -hmm. sometimes it's nice to just let it go, just let him say whatever he's going to say and focus mm -hmm. on what actually matters. Well, during our Lord's own time, his three years of teaching, the apostles could have obsessed about what the Pharisees were saying. Or the disciples at large could have been obsessing about what the Pharisees were saying. And we could obsess about what the modernists are saying or doing now, right? But it's not right to obsess about these things. Mm -hmm. However, during our Lord's lifetime and his three years of teaching, he himself brought up what they were saying. Or the apostles and the, and the uh, disciples heard them say these things to our Lord. And our Lord did respond to them and did explain to the apostles and the disciples what, what they should think about these things. So our Lord did make a response to this. But uh, it wasn't the sum and substance of his teaching. It wasn't the primary focus of his teaching to simply respond to the Pharisees. What our Lord taught was what they needed to say their souls. And uh, that's where our, our emphasis is, too. Um, so I, I, I agree with you that we, do need, we should try to... Um, emphasize here in this program what we do need to do to be faithful to Christ and save our souls. At the same time, bringing up the errors, but even in bringing up the errors, we should bring up the errors in such a way that they highlight what the truth is. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope we're doing that. Um, I want to stay on track because it is easy to kind of obsess about the, the goofy things that the modernists are doing, the sacrilegious things, the blasphemous things, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we need to do is uh, keep our eyes on our Lord. Yep. Well, Father, we have another email here. I believe it's from a newer viewer who wrote in uh, a list of questions for us. I believe I counted around 11 or 12 questions in one email. They're all rather short, though. Let's see if we can... Uh, I don't know about the answers. It's not the questions, it's the answers that are brought. That's true. Uh, okay, first question. Is there anything objectionable with someone, male or female, straightening or dyeing their hair? Not that I know of. Okay. <clears throat> um, I mean, I think even St. Thomas Aquinas would not object. He, he talks about the, uh, for example, a woman using cosmetics to make herself more attractive to her husband. He said, as long as that is ordered, well-ordered for the sake of uh, 
you know, the, in fostering the love and the fondness between the husband and the wife. Mm-hmm. And St. Thomas Aquinas said it, you know, it was not, uh, was not wrong to do that. Okay. It could be wrong because if one is being, well, obsessive, again, or excessive, excessive in these things. But in itself, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. Okay. Is eating at a buffet partaking in the sin of gluttony? Eating out of the buffet? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. It depends on how much you eat. If you eat more than you should, and you eat to the point where you damage your health, it could be a sin of gluttony. It could even be a mortal sin if you severely damage your health. If you started one to the buffet and just <laughs> ate yourself to the other end, and everybody else went hungry, I, 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 that would probably amount to a, a mortal sin for the average person, anyway. All right. Um, it could. It could. But in itself, no. Just partaking in a buffet does not constitute gluttony. Is there anything objectionable with admiring classical art, which includes scantily clad people? Well, if that were the case, you'd have uh, kind of a rough time sometimes if one of the, even one of the uh, basilicas in Rome, you know. So, uh, Pope Sixtus V was well known for covering up figures in paintings and uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the Renaissance uh, uh, brought in some pretty, I'd say, immodest art, right? Um, but there are those who actually, and I, I hesitate to even mention this, um, actually, but I mean, there's, there's those who even find a problem with the crucifix. I'm sorry to say, you know, their, their, their minds should be elsewhere. It should be, you know, it should be so struck by the the love of our Lord giving his life there and that condition on the cross. But there are some who say, well, you know, we, we shouldn't even allow those, you know, but uh, they're wrong. They're, they're totally wrong. So um, it depends on whether the art is erotic art and is, is meant to stir up the passions or not. If that is the focus of it, then that would be immoral, certainly. And um, it could be immoral in the intent of the artist if he painted it this way. I mean, even uh, Caravaggio. Caravaggio was not a, a, a very, shall we say, prudish man, okay? <clears throat> he was known to be a bit of a rake, okay? He, but he, he made some very striking and, and powerful paintings uh, of religious subjects. One of them is in the church... Uh, San Luigi dei Francesi in Rome, the French National Church in Rome. Um, the, the left, the gospel side, uh, side aisle, okay, into a chapel where they have two powerful heroic sized paintings by Caravaggio of the calling of St. Matthew, but the one I'm thinking of is the martyrdom of St. Peter, okay? And St. Peter is wearing the loincloth. Um, the light, of course, in the chiaroscuro school, the light is focused on the figure of St. Peter, whereas much else is in darkness, as though a spotlight was shining on him. And, uh, you know, you have the rippling muscles, and he doesn't look like uh, a man of 64, 65 years old. I mean, he's very robust. But one, you know, a normal, healthy human mind doesn't focus on that. The normal, healthy human mind, moved by faith in this case, Sees the expression of the face, the meaning of the of the of the, of the art. Uh, even even um, Caravaggio. I mean, I think one would have to really stretch the imagination to think even Caravaggio, <coughs> being kind of rakish, 
was focusing on that, was trying to convey some kind of a bad meaning to this. So, um, again, I, I, you know, I, in other words, what, I, what I'm saying is, in, in religious art, there can be scantily clad figures which ref simply reflect the reality of their martyrdoms, or whatever, um, or the degeneracy of paganism and so on. Uh, but they don't have to be uh, impure temptations unless the person has a heightened sensitivity to that or is so prey to those temptations and sins that virtually anything can become a source of temptation to them. Um, so, the, no, it's not intrinsically evil to represent someone that, yeah. that way. Um, and it doesn't have to be that kind of art doesn't have to be condemned uh yeah in you know out of out of hand or off hand um it can carry the spiritual message very powerfully uh without being a source of temptation for anyone okay then next question if one is uncertain of whether they are in a state of grace or not is it a mortal sin to receive communion if one <laughs> is not certain that he's in the state of grace or not, if he thinks he might have committed a mortal sin. Uh, the church generally tells us someone honestly does not know that he cannot say, yes, I'm guilty of mortal sin, and I'm sure of it. No, I'm not guilty of mortal sin, and I'm sure of it. Um, that he could give himself the benefit of the doubt. As long as his intention is... <clears throat> that he would never commit a sacrilege willingly, that if he knew that his communion was sacrilegious, that he would not go. He would never will to commit a sacrilege. Uh, in a case like that, the, the individual could give himself the benefit of the doubt, ask our Lord for the grace of a, a perfect act of contrition in any case, but that doubt itself would not necessarily keep him from receiving Holy Communion. Mortal sin would, but the doubt itself would not. Okay. Now, here's the thing that uh, the church also qualifies that by saying <clears throat> that if the one who, who doubts whether he committed a mortal sin or not knows from past experience that he is very much given to commit those sins and often does fall into them, he often does consent to them, then the benefit of the doubt is not in his favor. Um, because he knows from past history that he has a proclivity to consenting to those sinful things. And even though the occasion might arise where he's not sure whether he consented or not, because of his past history of, um, of finding that he does give in to those temptations, even perhaps routinely or commonly, you know, regularly, <laughs> um, there he should not give himself the benefit of the doubt, especially if it involves sins of impurity. Uh, so there's a limitation as to how much of a, a benefit, of, a, of how much of a doubt one can give himself. One has to, on the other hand, for example, if the one has a doubt, did I consent to this or not? And he knows from experience that normally he does not. He does not consent to these things, that he avoids these temptations, uh, does not go looking for them, um, uh, at least, and that he, he avoids uh, 
programs and music and so on that, that bring these temptations to him. Ordinarily, uh, he rejects them, and now he's in doubt whether he did reject this fully or not, or gave full consent. That would be a legitimate doubt that he could give himself the, the benefit of being able to go and, and receive. Now, he might go and receive, and on the way back from communion, he might think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to think now that I am guilty, and he might come to the conclusion that he did give full consent. Then he might ask himself, well, did I therefore commit a sacrilege when I went to confession? When I went to communion, I beg pardon. <clears throat> and the answer is, well, no, he didn't actually commit a sacrilege. Even if after receiving the communion, he comes to the conclusion, reasoning through this process, whatever it is, and convinces himself that he really did give full consent to a mortal sin. Um, the fact is, the honest reality is when he went to receive, he was in doubt that he, he had every intention, he had no intention to commit a sacrilege and every intention not to commit a sacrilege and would not have gone to communion if he thought he was committing a sacrilege. So he had zero intention to commit a sacrilege and he wouldn't have done it if he thought he had, thought he would. So the point is, even if subsequently he comes to the conclusion that he in fact had committed a mortal sin, he would still not be guilty of sacrilege for having received Holy Communion under those circumstances. Right. If one cannot get to Mass, <coughs> would it be a mortal sin to delay praying the Rosary and then falling asleep before finishing or forgetting to pray it altogether? Okay, could you repeat that? Please, sir. If one cannot get to Mass, would it be a mortal sin to delay praying the Rosary and then falling asleep before finishing or forgetting to pray it altogether? If one cannot get to Mass, right. he doesn't explain why, but maybe he doesn't have to. I assume that he's assuming there's a legitimate reason. Because of illness, or incapacity, because of no travel, or because of the unavailability of Mass, whatever it is. So we have a legitimate reason not to, to go to Mass. Well, there is no a precept of the Church that commands him to pray the Rosary each day. It is a devotion that is highly recommended and which we should take very seriously as a matter for Our Lady. Uh, uh, but um, if, the, if the individual writing this says, well, we have an obligation to sanctify the day. But the Church's precept to sanctify the day involves attending Mass and abstaining from sin on work. Well, if one cannot it's impossible, shall we say, morally impossible for the person to get to Mass. He doesn't have a further obligation by precept. So it would be laudable and certainly the right thing to do to pray the Rosary and to pray it all the way through. But he certainly would not be sinning against the precept of the Church to sanctify the Sunday by failing to pray the Rosary. Okay. All right. So, then next question. I mean, he might be setting a bad example for his children, for example, by failing to pray the rosary. They would not understand, but he's not breaking the precept of sanctifying the Sunday or the Holy Day. Okay. Would someone who has done the Hitler salute for any purpose, comedic, political, etc., be guilty of idolatry? What qualifies as a mortal sin of idolatry? This is very interesting. This person comes up with a list of questions. This is all the same questions. Sorry. Okay, could you read that again, please? Would someone Sorry. who has done... We're jumping from one thing to another. 
<laughs> Would someone who has done the Hitler salute for any purpose, comedic, political, etc., be guilty of idolatry? Also, what, quali- no. what qualifies as a mortal sin of idolatry? Well, why would giving the Hitler salute constitute adultery? I mean, if they were in a play, you know, and they were performing as a Nazi on stage, or, um, no, uh, they wouldn't be guilty of idolatry. It's not a religious act that I know of, right? It's not paying uh, any, it's not giving worship, uh, worshiping a false god, technically speaking, right? Uh, that I know of, right? I mean, I, I know Hitler had ties with the occult. Uh, his SS was tied to the occult and the Aryan mythology that he had there and all. Um, but still, um, fascism, that was a fascist salute. And no one has ever suggested that fascism itself is or ever was a religion. So I don't see how one can be guilty of idolatry um, I'm, I'm trying to think of how this could possibly be interpreted in any sense as idolatry, and I'm not coming up with anything, I'm sorry. Okay. So what is the other thing? What qualifies as a mortal sin of idolatry? Worshipping a false god. Um, essentially worshipping a false god. Okay. That's why St. Paul even lumps, lumps avarice together with idolatry, as though it is a worship of material goods. Uh, Father, what is your stance on listening to music derived from the profane Carmina Burana manuscript? There are performances available online which apparently mock the sacred rights of the church. Is there anything objectionable from listening to songs such as Carl Orff's adaptation of O O Fortuana? The Carmina Burana were actually drinking songs during the Middle Ages, generally college drinking songs, okay? And they were in Latin, right? Which makes them sound scholarly and pious. <laughs> but they were neither scholarly nor pious. And um, they were actually rather profane, clearly. Okay, I mean, college drinking songs um, are not hymns. Uh, would they be uh, sinful to listen to? If one consented to the message, any sinful messages there, yeah, uh, they ha- they have somewhat catchy tunes. Okay, the tunes themselves are not intrinsically evil, of course. If one um, found a, a tune of a Carmina Barana to be catchy, um, just because he heard it and he thought, well, that's that's kind of nice. Um, I mean, let's face it, compared to what they what passes for music today, I mean, this is, what we've got today is just sound effects, you know, compared to even the profane music of the past is much more music than, than what we've got today. But <clears throat> in any case, uh, that would not make it wrong. But the message of the Carmina Burana, insofar in as, as they are uh, somewhat... Um, Oh, Randy and their messages, and uh, Ribald, their messages, they're to be avoided. One should not, generally speaking, I mean, one, one should not find entertaining what is offensive to God. And these songs um, glorified drink, and uh, usually drink to excess, and uh, possibly rather a bit of impurity also. So just as I would say, that someone today who wanted to listen to some music of the rain say, well, if you're listening to something that actually 
conjures up in your mind and your imagination impure ideas and, and glorifies what is evil, that's a, that's a sin to listen to. It. It's an occasion of sin for you. All right. Well, I think we can end with this one. Do you hold the Cardinal Siri thesis? There is compelling evidence that Siri was elected Pope Gregory the Seventeenth, but not that he accepted the office. For if he was truly Pope, he would not be bound by the seal of secrecy of the conclave. The, car the Siri theory, uh, as some have called it, or the Cardinal Siri thesis, is an evolving idea, okay? I mean, it, it has been going on for years now, and it has the idea, as this gentleman mentions, I think it is a gentleman, maybe it's a lady, um, that um, the Conclave of, ni Conclave of 1958, um, when Pope Pius XII died, originally elected Cardinal Siri of Genoa, not John the Twenty-Third, Cardinal Siri of Genoa. <clears throat> the idea was that um, the whites, the straw was burned, the white smoke came out of the chimney, people saw that, Habemos Papa, we have a Pope, they were rejoicing, and then all of a sudden the black smoke, smoke followed the white, and everybody realized, oh, I guess we don't have a pope, right? And so it's a fact that that happened. Generally conceded as a fact. There are even photographs. And so uh, there was confusion. Now, this has become part of a narrative of the whole idea that um, something happened in that conclave that was very nefarious, being this, that Cardinal Siri, having been duly elected by the cardinals, was warned not to accept the papacy because if he did, <clears throat> there would be terrible retribution from the Freemasons. This is the story. That the Freemasons threatened Cardinal Siri, whether they threatened him, whether they would wreak havoc with the church, that they would murder his family or whatever it was. I don't know the nature of the threats. I'm sure somebody now has come up with something <laughs> to explain that. Um, but that Cardinal Siri, this was the original story that I got by way back when, years and years ago. Cardinal Siri, intimidated by these terrible threats, thought, well, it would be a very serious mistake to accept this. So he rejected the papacy and would not become the Pope and accept the, uh, the office as Vicar of Christ in the, in, the, in the church. And that the Freemasons basically then took over the, the, the conclave and arranged for John the Twenty Third to be. John the Twenty Third supposedly was a compromised candidate because he was up in years, he wasn't going to last long. They, they'd elect him within three or four years, he would be gone, and then they could actually try again to elect a pope who would make a difference. This is the conventional wisdom, such as it is. Um, the fact is, though, there are so many, um, so many problems with that theory that, 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 that render the whole thing null and void and nothing but a, 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 a grotesque distraction from what's actually happening to the church today. Why are people talking about this? They're looking for an explanation. They're desperately trying to find an explanation for what's happening today. Um, and this is what they've come up with based upon a, basically a handful of circumstances um, that probably would constitute the, the, the theme of a good novel, but they do not constitute reality. Okay? 
And what I was telling people back then, when this was first presented to me in the, in the terms I just mentioned to you, look, even if Cardinal Siri was elected by the uh, unanimous vote of the cardinals, if he did not accept that election, he was never the pope. He had to, uh, everyone who's elected uh, by the College of Cardinals has to formally accept the office of the papacy because of the, it's a tremendous responsibility. Uh, he cannot be intruded by others into the papacy against his will. <clears throat> so um, we, know, we know that historically, even those who have accepted the papacy have, have resigned from it. Right? So, I mean, uh, they made a big deal about Benedict resigning, but there have been popes in the past, uh, several popes in the past have resigned from the papacy, among them a saint, Saint Celestine V in the 1200s. So, uh, again, nobody can hold the, uh, holds the papacy against his will. And not only that, but I mentioned, look, if, if Cardinal Siri <coughs> was elected the pope, if he was elected and didn't accept it because he was afraid of the threats that were being leveled against him, then be thankful to God that he did not accept the papacy because the church doesn't need a pope who can be terrified into rejecting the papacy because of the threats that are leveled against him. I mean, what kind of a pope would that man be if it would be controlled by threats? Um, it would be a disaster as a pope. So, in other words... Uh, now, listen, I've had a conversation with someone recently about this, and they've refined the storyline of this to say, oh, well, he did accept the papacy, but then this happened, or, you know, they, they, they found more to the story. They're always finding more and more to the story, okay, to try to answer the objections. But they're just fabricating these, these things that happened or might have happened in their own minds to justify this and justify that, because they don't want to let this go. Oh, by the way, then the question came, well, what about, what about him dying then? I mean, if he, if he had been the Pope, legitimately the Pope, and he was in, intimidated into backing off, I mean, he lived for years after, after uh, the conclave, never said a thing about being the real Pope. Never. Oh, no. Saying, well, I was really the one who was elected. It wasn't really that. John XXIII there. Um, <clears throat> and he died. Well, now, here's their explanation. Well, before he died, he appointed someone as his successor. And you say, well, wait a minute, a pope can't appoint his successor. Oh, yeah, yeah, go back to uh, Pope Leo IX or whatever it was. And there's historical question about whether he actually succeeded. He actually did appoint his successor. So they're bringing up all of these things that are very much out of the ordinary, very disputed, Okay. Um, the idea that he have elected, if he were elected, appointed any cardinals. I mean, there's no, there's, there's no answer to these things because the, the question itself is, is just contrived. Mm -hmm. So I would just tell people, look, um, don't go chasing bubble, soap bubbles, okay? Um, looking desperately for some kind of an explanation as to what's going on because you'll you'll wind up with the wrong you'll wind up in the wrong place you'll wind up with 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 the wrong answers and generally wind up outside the faith as some people did when they started electing their own pope out in montana who was living in a mobile home out there became pious the 13th right so uh, when we have to be very careful 
about uh, you know chasing chasing rainbows of people scenarios far-fetched scenarios no I don't I don't subscribe to the Siri uh, thesis at all mm. and I think it's dangerous to, to do so it can lead us very much in the wrong direction well father let's end there we got through a lot tonight so thank you for being here Appreciate well you're welcome no, thank you thank okay. you very much and uh, I hope that uh, people can benefit somewhat from this. If they're not, they have to let us know. If they are, they have to let us know, too. But if there's something that's left unclear or confusing, it's very important that they follow up and not let us off the hook and say, I, I need an answer to this question. You know, one of, one of the puzzling questions, I, know I don't want to go off on another tangent here, but since you brought up the, the Siri thesis and all that, there is a very, very intriguing question with regard to the papacy, even with regarding, regard to the church in our own time. And this has to do with the election of Pope Martin V. You know, this came after the Babylonian captivity of the church in the 1300s, and then the Great Western Schism in the latter 1300s and early 1400s. <clears throat> and how was this all brought together again? I mean, there, there you have a, a true miracle of grace from God. Because I'm sure people at that time thought that there is absolutely no way to solve this problem. And every attempt we make makes it worse. You know, what comes to my mind is the Disney's rendition or cartoon of the Sorcerer's Apprentice with Mickey, the, the, the apprentice sorcerer with the axe chopping the, 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 um, the broom, you know, carrying the buckets of water. Uh, that's a prime example of human efforts getting out of control and just making things worse, okay? Maybe it's a bad analogy, I'm sorry, but, uh, but there we have people who are trying to solve a problem, and they were just making it worse and worse. Uh, and um, I'm sure that people came to the conclusion, this is it, this is the end. But God, and God alone had a solution. He's the only one who could, you know. At uh, the Council of Constance, which did not really begin as a legitimate council, but actually brought about a conclave that produced a real pope, Urban V, who then had to, in a sense, retroactively approve of what had been done, much of what had been done there. And, um, and the, the conclave that elected him was very, very uh, different. It was very unusual. Uh, the reason I bring that up really now is because I see people going off on tangents like this Siri thesis and so on, because people are trying to find, think about, well, how do we get into this and how can we possibly get out of it? And I think the, the case of Martin V is, a, is, a, is one that really deserves our attention, our study, because it really, it really drives home the point that God has his ways. I mean, he has his graces, and he can do amazing things. Um, and sometimes we um, are so short-sighted because we can't see how this can be solved. We don't think it can be. But God does, and he's done it many times, and he can. Um, and the only reason he's permitting this is because there are great saints coming out of this. And they, they will. St. Louis de Montfort said that the saints of the latter days will be 
will be great, great saints. He, he even said that they will be like the cedars of Lebanon compared to the shrubs. Remember that? Of the, of the saints of the early days of the church. I mean, that's inconceivable to us. But this is the power of divine grace. So um, I know there are those today looking at the state of the church who lose heart and eventually lose faith. They lose hope. And they give up and they go away. And they join these sects that, you know, kind of follow their political uh, ideas or, or whatever. But they've lost their faith, really. And um, um, like the, 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 this first uh, example you brought up of people who are kind of waylaid by the Protestant attacks on the faith. They, they see that they have a way of picking off sheep by these, you know, the wolves do. But we just have to maintain our faith. You and I are traditional Catholics today because we have, we have complete faith in our Lord. And even looking at the church and the condition she's in today, our, our faith in the Catholic Church is not shaken at all. We are as convinced as ever, perhaps more convinced than ever, that this is the one true church. And that this is Christ's church, though. And you're not going to save it, and I'm not going to save it, but he is. And just because we cannot exactly tell how or when, or give him instructions and guide him through, <laughs> that we know he knows and he has the power to do it, and he will. And all we have to do is remain faithful today. That's our mission, right? Sounds good. So, Thank you, Father. Well, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.